17. When allowed free play, build themselves into definite and, for the most part, beautiful forms called crystals, iron, copper, gold, silver, lead, sulfur, when melted and permitted to cool gradually, all show this crystallizing power, the metal bismuth shows it in a particularly striking manner, and when properly fused and solidified, self-built crystals of great size and beauty are formed of this metal, if you dissolve salt petra in water, and allow the solution to evaporate slowly, you may obtain large crystals, for no portion of the salt is converted into vapor, the water of our atmosphere is fresh though it is derived from the salt sea, sugar dissolved in water, and permitted to evaporate, yields crystals of sugar candy, alum readily crystallizes in the same way, flints dissolved, as they sometimes are in nature, and permitted to crystallize, yield the prisms and pyramids of rock crystal, chalk dissolved and crystallized yields Iceland spar, the diamond is crystallized carbon, all our precious stones, the ruby, sapphire, beryl, topaz, emerald, are all examples of this crystallizing power, you have heard of the force of gravitation, and you know that it consists of an attraction of every particle of matter for every other particle, you know that planets and moons are held in their orbits by this attraction, but gravitation is a very simple affair compared to the force, or rather forces, of crystallization, for here the ultimate particles of matter, inconceivably small as they are, show themselves possessed of attractive and repellent poles, by the mutual action of which the shape and structure of the crystal are determined, in the solid condition the attracting poles are rigidly locked together, but if sufficient heat be applied the bond of union is dissolved, and in the state of fusion the poles are pushed so far asunder as to be practically out of each other's range, the natural tendency of the molecules to build themselves together is thus neutralized, this is the case with water, which is a liquid is to all appearance formless, when sufficiently cooled the molecules are brought within the play of the crystallizing force, and they then arrange themselves in forms of indescribable beauty, when snow is produced in calm air, the icy particles build themselves into beautiful stellar shapes, each star possessing six rays, there is no deviation from this type, though in other respects the appearances of the snow stars are infinitely various, in the polar regions these exquisite forms were observed by Dr. Scoresby, who gave numerous drawings of them, I had observed them in midwinter filling the air, and loading the slopes of the Alps, but in England they are also to be seen, and no words of mine could convey so vivid an impression of their beauty as the annexed drawings of a few of them executed at Greenwich by Mr. Glottisher, it is worth pausing to think what wonderful work is going on in the atmosphere during the formation and descent of every snow shower, what building power is brought into play, and how imperfect seem the productions of human minds and hands when compared with those formed by the blind forces of nature, but who ventures to call the forces of nature blind, in reality, when we speak thus we are describing our own condition, the blindness is ours, and what we really ought to say, and to confess, is that our powers are absolutely unable to comprehend either the origin or the end of the operations of nature, but while we thus acknowledge our limits, there is also reason for wonder at the extent to which science has mastered the system of nature, from age to age, and from generation to generation, fact has been added to fact, and law to law, the true method and order of the universe being thereby more and more revealed, in doing this science has encountered and overthrown various forms of superstition and deceit, of credulity and imposture, but the world continually produces weak persons and wicked persons, and as long as they continue to exist side by side, as they do in this our day, 
very debasing beliefs will also continue to invest the world. Atomic poles. What did I mean when, a few moments ago I spoke of attracting and repellent poles? Let me try to answer this question. You know that astronomers and geographers speak of the Earth's poles, and you have also heard of magnetic poles. The poles of a magnet being the points at which the attraction and repulsion of the magnet are as it were concentrated. Every magnet possesses two such poles, and if iron filings be scattered over a magnet, each particle becomes also endowed with two poles. Suppose such particles devoid of weight and floating in our atmosphere. What must occur when they come near each other? Manifestly the repellent poles will retreat from each other, while the attractive poles will approach and finally lock themselves together. And supposing the particles, instead of a single pair, to possess several pairs of poles arranged at definite points over their surfaces, you can then picture them, in obedience to their mutual attractions and repulsions, building themselves together to form that phase of definite shape and structure. Imagine the molecules of water in calm cold air to be gifted with poles of this description, which compel the particles to allay themselves together in a definite order and you had before your mind's eye the unseen architecture which finally produces the visible and beautiful crystals of the snow. Thus our first notions and conceptions of poles are obtained from the sight of our eyes in looking at the effects of magnetism, and we then transfer these notions and conceptions to particles which no eye has ever seen. The power by which we thus picture to ourselves effects beyond the range of the senses is what philosophers call the imagination and in the effort of the mind to seize upon the unseen architecture of crystals. We had an example of the scientific use of this faculty. Without imagination we might have critical power, but not creative power in science. Architecture of lake ice. We had thus made ourselves acquainted with the beautiful snow flower self-constructed by the molecules of water in calm, cold air. Do the molecules show this architectural power when ordinary water is frozen? What? For example, is the structure of the ice over which we skate in winter, quite as wonderful as the flowers of the snow. The observation is rare, if not new, but I have seen in water slowly freezing six-rayed ice stars formed, and floating free on the surface. A six-rayed star, moreover, is typical of the construction of all our lake ice. It is built up of such forms wonderfully interlaced. Take a slab of lake ice and place it in the path of a concentrated sunbeam. Watch the track of the beam through the ice. Part of the beam is stopped. Part of it goes through. The former produces internal liquefaction. The latter has no effect whatever upon the ice. But the liquefaction is not uniformly diffused. From separate spots of the ice little shining points are seen to sparkle forth. Every one of those points is surrounded by a beautiful liquid flower with six petals. Ice and water are so optically alike that unless the light fall properly upon these flowers you cannot see them. But what is the central spot? A vacuum. Ice swims on water because, bulk for bulk, it is lighter than water, so that when ice is melted it shrinks in size. Can the liquid flowers then occupy the whole space of the ice melted? Plainly no. A little empty space is formed with the flowers, and the space, or rather its surface, shines in the sun with the luster of burnished silver. In all cases the flowers are formed parallel to the surface of freezing. They are formed when the sun shines upon the ice of every lake, sometimes in myriads and so small as to require a magnifying glass to see them. They are always attainable, but their beauty is often marred by internal defects of the ice. Every one portion of the same piece of ice may show them exquisitely, while a second portion shows them imperfectly. Annexed is a very imperfect sketch of these beautiful figures. Here we had a reversal of the process of crystallization. 
the searching solar beam is delicate enough to take the molecules down without deranging the order of their architecture. Try the experiment for yourself with a pocket lens on a sunny day. You will not find the flowers confused, they all lie parallel to the surface of freezing. In this exquisite way every bit of the ice over which our skaters glide in winter is put together. I said that a portion of the sunbeam was stopped by the ice and liquefied it. What is this portion? The dark heat of the sun. The great body of the light waves and even a portion of the dark ones. Pass through the ice without losing any of their heating power. When properly concentrated on combustible bodies. Even after having passed through the ice. Their burning power becomes manifest. And the ice itself may be employed to concentrate them. With an ice lens in the polar regions Dr. Scoresby has often concentrated the sun's rays so as to make them burn wood, fire gunpowder, and melt lead, thus proving that the heating power is retained by the rays, even after they have passed through so cold a substance, by rendering the rays of the electric lamp parallel, and then sending them through a lens of ice, we obtain all the effects which Dr. Scoresby obtained with the rays of the sun, the organic world from the elements of science. My Street George M.I.B.A.R.D.F.R.S. The number of all the various kinds of living creatures is so enormous that it would be impossible to study them profitably. Were they not classified in an orderly manner? Therefore the whole mass has been divided, in the first place, into two supreme groups. Fancifully termed kingdoms the animal kingdom and the vegetal kingdom. Each of these is subdivided into an orderly series of subordinate groups, successively contained one within the other, and named sub-kingdoms classes, orders, families, genera and species, the lowest group but one is the genus, which contains one or more different kinds termed species, as e.g. the species wood anemone and the species blue titmouse, the lowest group of all a species may be said to consist of individuals which differ from each other only by trifling characters, such as characters due to difference of sex, while their peculiar organization is faithfully reproduced by generation as a whole. Though small individual differences exist in all cases, the vegetal, or vegetable, kingdom, consists of the great mass of flowering plants, many of which, however, have such inconspicuous flowers that they are mistakenly regarded as flowerless, as is often the case with the grasses, the pines, and the ewes. Another mass, or sub-kingdom, of plants consists of the really flowerless plants, such as the ferns, horsetails figure 1, lycopods, and mosses sea and freshwater weeds algae, and mushrooms, or, molds, of all kinds fungi, amongst which are the now famous, bacteria, constitute a third and lowest set of plants, the animal kingdom consists, first, of a sub-kingdom of animals which possess a spinal column, or backbone, and which are known as vertebrate animals, such are all beasts, birds, reptiles, and fishes, there are also a variety of remotely allied marine organisms known as tunicates, sea squirts, or ascidians figure 2, their island further, an immense group of arthropods, consisting of all insects, crab-like creatures, hundred legs and their allies, with spiders, scorpions, ticks and mites, we have also the sub-kingdom of shellfish or mollusks, including cuttlefishes, snails, whelks, limpets, the oyster, and a multitude of allied forms, a multitudinous sub-kingdom of worms also exists as well as another of starfishes and their congeners, there is yet another of zoophytes, or polyps, and another of sponges, and, finally, we have a sub-kingdom of minute creatures, or animalculi, of very varied forms, which may make up the sub-kingdom of protozoa, 
consisting of animals which are mostly unicellular, multitudinous and varied as are the creatures which compose this immense organic world, they nevertheless exhibit a very remarkable uniformity of composition in their essential structure. Every living creature from a man to a mushroom, or even to the smallest animalcule or unicellular plant is always partly fluid, but never entirely so. Every living creature also consists in part and that part is the most active living part of a soft, viscid, transparent, colorless substance, termed protoplasm, which can be resolved into the four elements, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen and carbon. Besides these four elements, living organisms commonly contain sulfur, phosphorus, chlorine, potassium, sodium, calcium, magnesium and iron. In the fact that living creatures always consist of the four elements, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen and carbon, we have a fundamental character whereby the organic and inorganic or non-living worlds are to be distinguished. For as we have seen, inorganic bodies, instead of being thus uniformly constituted, may consist of the most diverse elements and sometimes of but two or even of only one. Again, many minerals, such as crystals, are bounded by plane surfaces, and, with very few exceptions spathic and hematite iron and dolomite are such exceptions none are bounded by curved lines and surfaces, while living organisms are bounded by such lines and surfaces, yet, again, if a crystal be cut through, its internal structure will be seen to be similar throughout, but if the body of any living creature be divided, it will, at the very least, be seen to consist of a variety of minute distinct particles, called, granules, variously distributed throughout its interior, all organisms consist either as do the simplest, mostly microscopic, plants and animals of a single minute mass of protoplasm, or of a few, or of many, or of an enormous aggregation of such before mentioned particles, each of which is one of those bodies named a cell, figure 3, cells may, or may not, be enclosed in an investing coat or cell wall. Every cell generally contains within it a denser, normally spheroidal, body known as the nucleus. Now protoplasm is a very unstable substance as we have seen many substances are whereof nitrogen is a component part and it possesses active properties which are not present in the non-living, or in organic world. In the latter, differences of temperature will produce motion in the shape of currents, as we have seen with respect to masses of air and water but in a portion of protoplasm, an internal circulation of currents in definite lines will establish itself from other causes, inorganic bodies, as we have seen, will expand with heat, as they may also do from imbibing moisture, but living protoplasm has an apparently spontaneous power of contraction and expansion under certain external conditions which do not occasion such movements in inorganic matter. Illustration, Figure 3, Cell from a Salamander, Nucleus, N. Nucleolus embedded in the network of chromatin threads. Network of the cell external to the nucleus. Attraction sphere or archoplasm containing minute bodies called centrosomes, centiliters membrane enclosing the cell externally. NL. Membrane surrounding the nucleus. Centrosomes. Under favoring conditions, protoplasm has a power of performing chemical changes, which result in producing heat far more gently and continuously than it is produced by the combustion of inorganic bodies. Thus it is that the heat is produced which makes its presence evident to us in what we call, warm-blooded animals, the most warm-blooded of all being birds. Protoplasm has also the wonderful power of transforming certain adjacent substances into material like itself into its own substance and so, in a sense, creating a new material. Thus it is that organisms have the power to nourish themselves and grow, 
An animal would vainly swallow the most nourishing food if the ultimate protoplasmic particles of its body had not this power of transforming suitable substances brought near them in ways to be hereinafter noticed. Without that, no organism could ever grow. The growth of organisms is utterly different from the increase in size of inorganic bodies. Crystals, as we have seen, grow merely by external increment, but organisms grow by an increment which takes place in the very innermost substance of the tissues which compose their bodies, and the innermost substance of the cells which compose such tissues, this peculiar form of growth is termed in tissue skeption. Protoplasm, after thus augmenting its mass, has a further power of spontaneous division, whereby the mass of the entire organism whereof such protoplasm forms a part, is augmented and so growth is brought about. The small particles of protoplasm which constitute cells are far indeed from being structureless. Besides the nucleus already mentioned there is a delicate network of threads of a substance called chromatin within it, and another network permeating the fluid of the cell substance, which invest the nucleus often with further complications. These networks generally perform or undergo a most complex series of changes every time a cell spontaneously divides, in certain cases. However, it appears that the nucleus divides into two in a more simple fashion, the rest of the cell contents subsequently dividing each half enclosing one part of the previously divided nucleus. It is by a continued process of cell division that the complex structures of the most complex organisms is brought about. The division of a cell, or particle of protoplasm, is indeed a necessary consequence of its complete nutrition, for new material can only be absorbed by its surface, but as the cell grows, the proportion borne by its surface to its mass, continually decreases, therefore this surface must soon be too small to take in nourishment enough, and the particle, or cell, must therefore either die or divide, by dividing, its parts can continue the nutritive process till their surface, in turn, becomes insufficient, when they must divide again, and so on, thus the term, feeding, has two senses, to feed a horse, ordinarily means to give it a certain quantity of hay, oats or what not, and such indeed is one kind of feeding, but obviously, if the nourishment so taken could not get from the stomach and intestines into the ultimate particles and cells of the horse's body, the horse could not be nourished, and still less could it grow, it is this latter process, called assimilation, which is the real and essential process of feeding, to which the process ordinarily so called is but introductory, protoplasm has also the power of forming and ejecting from its own substance, other substances which it has made, but which are of a different nature to its own. This function, as before said, is termed secretion, and we know the liver secretes bile, and that the cow's udder secretes milk. Here again we have an external and an internal process. The milk is drawn forth from a receptacle, the udder, into which it finds its way, and so, in a superficial sense, it may be called an organ of secretion. Nevertheless the true internal secretion takes place in the innermost substance of the cells or particles of protoplasm, of the milk land, which particles really form that liquid, but every living creature consists at first entirely of a particle of protoplasm, therefore every other kind of substance which may be found in every kind of plant or animal, must have been formed through it, and be, in fact, a secretion from protoplasm, such as the rosy cheek of an apple, or of a maiden, the luscious juice of the peach the produce of the castor oil plant, the baleen that lines the whale's enormous jaws, as well as that softest product, the fur of the chinchilla. Indeed, every particle of protoplasm requires, in order that it may live, a continuous process of exchange, 
it needs to be continuously first built up by food, and then broken down by discharging what is no longer needful for its healthy existence. Thus the life of every organism is a life of almost incessant change, not only in its being as a whole, but in that of all its protoplasmic particles also. Illustration, Figure 4. Amoeba shown in two of the many irregular shapes it assumes. After house, the clear space within it is a contractile vesicle. The dark body is the nucleus. In the right-hand figure there is shown a particle of food, passing through the external surface. Prominent among such processes is that of an interchange of gases between the living being and its environment. This process consists in an absorption of oxygen and a giving out of carbonic acid, which exchange is termed respiration. Lastly, protoplasm has a power of motion when appropriately acted on. It will then contract or expand its shape by alternate protrusions and retractions of parts of its substance. These movements are termed amoebiform, because they quite resemble the movements of a small animalcule which is named amoeba. See figure 4. Such is the ultimate structure, and such are the fundamental activities or functions of living organisms, as far as they can here be described, from the lowest animalcule and unicellular plant, up to the most complex organisms and the body of man himself. Inhabitants of my pool from magic glasses, by A.R.A.B.L.A.B. Buckley. The pool lies in a deep hollow among a group of rocks and boulders, close to the entrance of the cove, which can only be entered at low water, it does not measure more than two feet across, so that you can step over it, if you take care not to slip on the masses of green and brown seaweed growing over the rocks on its sides, as I have done many a time when collecting specimens for our salt water aquarium, I find now the only way is to lie flat down on the rock so that my hands and eyes are free to observe and handle, and then, bringing my eye down to the edge of the pool, to lift the seaweeds and let the sunlight enter into the chinks and crannies, in this way I can catch sight of many a small being either on the seaweed or the rocky ledges, and even creatures transparent as glass become visible by the thin outline gleaming in the sunlight, then I pluck a piece of seaweed, or chip off a fragment of rock with a sharp-edged collecting knife, bringing away the specimen and injured upon it, and place it carefully in its own separate bottle to be carried home alive and well. Now though this little pool and I are old friends, I find new treasures in it almost every time I go, for it is almost as full of living things as the heavens are of stars, and the tide as it comes and goes brings many a mother there to find a safe home for her little ones, and many a waif and stray to seek shelter from the troubling's life of the open ocean. You will perhaps find it difficult to believe that in this rock-bound basin there can be millions of living creatures hidden away among the fine feathery weeds, yet so it is, not that they are always the same, at one time it may be the home of myriads of infant crabs, not an eighth of an inch long, another of baby sea urchins only visible to the naked eye as minute spots in the water, that another of young jellyfish growing on their tiny stalks, and splitting off one by one as transparent bells to float away with the rising tide or it may be that the whelk has chosen this quiet nook to deposit her leathery eggs, or young barnacles, periwinkles, and limpets are growing up among the green and brown tangles, while the far-sailing vilella and the stay-at-home sea squirts, together with a variety of other sea animals, find a nursery and shelter in their youth in this quiet harbor of rest, and besides these casual visitors there are numberless creatures which have lived and multiplied there, ever since I first visited the pool, tender red, olive-colored, and green seaweeds, stony corallins, and acorn barnacles lining the floor, sea anemones clinging to the sides, sponges tiny and many-colored hiding under the ledges, 
and limpets and mussels wedged in the cracks. These can be easily seen with the naked eye, but they are not the most numerous inhabitants, for these we must search with a magnifying glass, which will reveal to us wonderful fairy forms, delicate crystal vases with tiny creatures in them whose transparent lashes make whirlpools in the water, living crystal bells so tiny that whole branches of them look only like a fringe of hair, jelly globes rising and falling in the water, patches of living jelly clinging to the rocky sides of the pool, and a hundred other forms, some so minute that you must examine the fine sand in which they lie under a powerful microscope before you can even guess that they are there. Illustration, Figure 1, Group of Seaweeds, Natural Size, 1, Aldolinza, 2, Sosilaria philocena, 3, Polysophonia ursolated, 4, Corallina officinalis, so it has proved a rich hunting ground, where summer and winter, spring and autumn, I find some form to put under my magic glass, there I can watch it for weeks growing and multiplying under my care, moved only from the aquarium, where I keep it supplied with healthy sea water, to the tiny transparent trough in which I place it for a few hours to see the changes it has undergone, I could tell you endless tales of transformations in these tiny lives, but I want today to show you a few of my friends, most of which I brought yesterday fresh from the pool, and have prepared for you to examine, illustration, figure 2, all the lakshuka, a green seaweed, greatly magnified to show structure, after orist, s spores in the cells, ss, spores swimming out, holes through which spores have escaped, let us begin with seaweeds, I have said that there are three leading colors in my pool green, olive, and red and these dints mark roughly three kinds of weed, though they occur in an endless variety of shapes, here is a piece of the beautiful pale green seaweed, called the laver or sea lettuce, all the linza one, figure one, which grows in long ribbons in a sunny nook in the water, I have placed under the first microscope a piece of this weed which is just sending out young seaweeds in the shape of tiny cells, with lashes very like those we saw coming from the moss flower, and I have pressed them in the position in which they would naturally leave the plant, you will also see on this side several cells in which these tiny spores are forming, ready to burst out and swim, for this green weed is merely a collection of cells, like the single-celled plants on land, each cell can work as a separate plant, it feeds, grows, and can send out its own young spores. Footnote 1, the slice given in figure 2 is from a broader-leaved form, Eulachuca, because this species, being composed of only one layer of cells, is better seen. All the linza is composed of two layers of cells, the steep olive green feathery wheat 2, figure 1, of which a piece is magnified under the next microscope 2, figure 3, is very different. It is a higher plant, and works harder for its living, using the darker rays of sunlight which penetrate into shady parts of the pool, so it comes to pass that its cells divide the work, those of the feathery threads make the food, while others, growing on short stalks on the shafts of the feather, make and send out the young spores. Lastly, the lovely red thread-like weeds, such as this Polysophonia ursolata 3, figure 1, carry actual urns on their stems like those of mosses, in fact, the history of these urns C3, figure 3, is much the same in the two classes of plants, only that instead of the urn being pushed up on a thin stalk as in the moss, it remains on the seaweed closed down to the stem, when it grows out of the plant egg, and the tiny plant is shut until the spores are ready to swim out. Illustration, figure 3, three seaweeds of figure 1 much magnified to show fruits, Harvey, 2, Sposillaria philocena, 3. 
Polysophonia ursolated. 4. Coralina officinalis. The stony corallins 4. Figures 1 and 3, which build so much carbonate of lime into their stems, are near relations of the red seaweeds. There are plenty of them in my pool. Some of them, of a deep purple color, grow upright in stiff groups about 3 or 4 inches high, and others, which form crusts over the stones and weeds, are a pale rose color, but both kinds, when the plant dies, leaving the stony skeleton one, figure 4, are appear white, and used to be mistaken for corals, they belong to the same order of plants as the red weeds, which all live in shady nooks in the pools, and are the highest of their race, illustration, figure 4, Coralin and S.E.R.D.U.L.A.R.I.A. To show likeness between the animal S.E.R.D.U.L.A.R.I.A. and the plant Coralin. 1. Coralin et officinalis. 2. Cerdularia filicula. My pool is full of different forms of these four weeds. The green ribbons float on the surface rooted to the sides of the pool, and, as the sun shines upon it, the glittering bubbles rising from them show that they are working up food out of the air in the water, and giving off oxygen. The brown weeds lie chiefly under the shelves of rocks, for they can manage with less sunlight, and use the darker rays which pass by the green weeds, and last of all, the red weeds and corallins, small and delicate in form, line the bottom of the pool in its darkest nooks. And now if I hand round two specimens, one a corallin, and the other something you do not yet know, I am sure you will say at first sight that they belong to the same family, and, in fact, if you buy at the seaside a group of seaweeds gummed on paper, you will most likely get both these among them. Yet the truth is, that while the coral in one, figure four is a plant, the other specimen two, which is called Cerdularia filicula, is an animal. The special Cerdularian grows upright in my pool on stones or often on seaweeds, but I have here figure five another and much smaller one which lives literally in millions hanging its cups downwards. I find it not only under the narrow ledges of the pool sheltered by the seaweed, but forming a fringe along all the rocks on each side of the cove near to a low water mark, and for a long time I passed it by thinking it was of no interest, but I have long since given up thinking this of anything, especially in my pool, for my magic glass has taught me that there is not even a living speck which does not open out into something marvelous and beautiful, so I chipped off a small piece of rock and brought the fringe home, and found, when I hung it up in clear sea water as I had done over this glass trough figure 5 and looked at it through the lens, that each thread of the dense fringe, in itself not a quarter of an inch deep, turns out to be a tiny circularian with at least 20 mouths. You can see this with your pocket lens even as it hangs here, and when you have examined it you can by and by take off one thread and put it carefully in the trough. I promise you a sight of the most beautiful little beings which exist in nature. Hill.